When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, the Bible, relationships, spirituality, religion, and all kinds of other subjects. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to take the questions of the day and answer them with theology and stories from the lives of the saints. And I include sermons in this podcast, which I am doing today a sermon that I preached on Sunday at St. Joan of Arc Episcopal Church, a new church startup in Pflugerville, Texas. I know it's been a while since I posted uh, a new podcast, and that is because of my burgeoning TikTok career, which has taken me to the heights of uh, views that I will probably ever achieve. And I can only imagine what that would be like for a podcast to get a couple million listens, I realize the podcast is not visual and it takes a lot longer to listen to a podcast, but it gives me hope that stuff that I make gets out there in the world. If you haven't seen the TikTok videos, I encourage you to find someone under the age of 25 and ask them about them. But today, working on a sermon or giving you a sermon that I preached on Sunday. The text is the gospel lesson from Luke, and before that we read the story in Jeremiah of the potter and the clay. God is compared to a potter, someone making pottery, who spins clay on a wheel and sometimes does things to that clay which transforms it, sometimes destruction, sometimes to make it into something beautiful, and that metaphor of the potter and the clay is a powerful Jeremiah metaphor for God and his people, God's people, and God's relationship to God's people. And the second lesson, which uh, Kristen read that morning, David Hill read the first lesson, and I wish you could have heard him. He did a great job. And then Kristen did a beautiful job reading the letter of Philemon or Philemon. It's a complete letter that makes a complete book of the New Testament, a letter from Paul, St. Paul, to a, to, um, to a slave owner, a Christian who had enslaved another person who the slave enslaved person had escaped, Onesimus, and St. Paul's writing to Philemon or Philemon, Philemon, to treat him as a brother and to take him back into his service. It's a very complex letter that talks about Paul as a prisoner, he is writing as a prisoner, compelling his fellow Christian to receive a fellow Christian, not as a slave, not as an enslaved person, but as a brother in Christ. Paul is subverting the very institution of slavery that, that constituted so much of the, modern, the ancient economy of that time. It's often thought that two-thirds of the Roman population, and certainly out where Philemon is and Onesimus is, were enslaved persons. It was a huge issue in the time of Paul. And the letter is brilliant in the way Paul deftly encourages this institution, this institutional relationship to end and a new relationship to begin, one of equals in Christ. Because St. Paul believes that there is no slave or free. 
in Christ, that we are all one, male or female, slave or free. There's a number of other categories that are demolished in the gospel, the good news, that all are equal. But the gospel lesson from the Sunday was the gospel according to St. Luke that tells us in chapter 14 that large crowds were following Jesus and he turned to them and said, whoever comes to me and does not hate father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. And that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the opening line of this gospel that large crowds were traveling with Jesus always intrigues me. The size of crowds that follow Jesus as they fluctuate from small to large and small. It's like there's a big bubble in the middle of the timeline of Jesus' crowds. He, As the crowds increase and get bigger and more numerous, he does things to reduce them in numbers. And this is one of those places where he takes the crowd and says something so jarring that even 2,000 years later, it's jarring. You know how and I didn't go into this in the sermon. But you know how like curse words from a long time ago seem to have a lot less power today? When you hear like an old movie and they're cursing each other, insulting each other, it often sounds kind of silly. An example of this is the word naughty. The word naughty, uh, even in one of the older prayer books, was, was like a grave sin if you were naughty. To be naughty was to do something really terrible. And to accuse someone of being naughty or to admit you had been naughty was just really uh, the, the lowest level of degradation, where in fact today the word naughty means kind of silly uh, at worst and just even funny at best. Uh, the word naughty doesn't pack the same punch as it used to. And you can see this over time that things that used to be shocking are now quite commonplace and don't, it doesn't shock anybody. And yet this statement from Jesus is still shocking I mean, he says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. So basically hating everyone, mother, father, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even your own life. That's what Jesus says. And you can imagine the crowds getting even thinner when he adds that last line, none of you can be my disciple unless you give up all your possessions, everything. This is pretty harsh. It hasn't lost its punch over time. And I think that the God that Jesus presents to us, remember Jesus is the incarnation of the living God. And so he presents to us what God is really like. 
And the God that Jesus presents to us, the God that Jesus talks about and teaches about and shows us and demonstrates to us, is not the God that you and I would just absorb from living in this culture. The God that is presented in the life of Christ is wholly other, if you will. The God is that is presented here is not the God of what's happening now, the God that most people in this country would think of when they thought of God. And everyone has a different conception of God, what God is, who God is, if God even is a who, if not just a force. But I think the predominant view that I run into the most, especially among Christians, because that's kind of my people who I'm talking to, is that God is a giant muffin in the sky. God is this giant Otis Spunkmeyer muffin. Not very good, not the best muffin, but sweet and good. And the role of the church is to get you to ascend or to boost you up high enough so that you can reach up and take a big bite of that muffin. God is the great muffin in the sky. And God is comforting and nurturing and completely at your disposal. And so this is the cheap muffin God of our culture. This God doesn't demand much of anyone. This God is not difficult to approach. This God is not the kind of God that would say you have to hate your mother, your father, your children, your wife. And yet God, the God that Jesus presents is very different. This God is more like the God in Jeremiah, the description of God in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah describes God like a potter taking this lump of clay and molding it and shaping it to the right shape. And that molding and shaping never ends. In fact, he combines the clay from one pot that's messed up and puts it with another pot. It's like this clay goes through so much shit and so much difficulty in the life of this clay. And we read that as putting ourselves in the place of the clay. And we say, wow, this seems really unfair. This seems like a lot. And grappling that is where Jeremiah wants us to go. He got, Jeremiah wants us to grapple with that notion that we are clay in the hands of the potter, ultimately making us into something beautiful, taking that very ordinary stuff of life, dirt, clay, and fashioning into something that is useful and beautiful, which is what I want, but I don't want that molding and shaping process. And yet that is the process that God takes God's people through. And this is the process that Jesus went through in his life here on earth that we can read about in four gospel accounts. It was true for Jesus that Jesus' life shows us this teaching about who God is in bold print, writ large for everyone to see. Jesus lives rough. He has no home. He doesn't marry. He angers his family and then sets his face like a hard flint toward the city of Jerusalem where all the prophets go to die. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. He rides right into that city, and he's not surprised at all with their reaction. They take him, and his own disciples betray him and deny him. They falsely accuse him and nail him to a stick out in the hot sun, his arms stretched out, on the hard wood of the cross, naked for all to see. His arms stretch out in love for the whole world. And yet there he is, 
the greatest failure in the world. This is not a picture of strength. This is a picture of the ultimate weakness, that Rome can do this to one man on a hillside outside the city of Jerusalem. And his mother sees him. She is there. She watches the whole thing, just as that prophecy said, a sword will pierce your heart too. And that sword pierces her heart. It hurts. How could Mary not think that he hated her? Unless you hate your mother and your father, you can't be my disciple. And we think of a young girl, a young woman, who hears the voices of angels and sees mystic visions, St. Joan of Arc, and she follows that vision to repel an invader in her homeland. She is betrayed, and there's a kangaroo court that mishandles truth and justice for their own ends. They manipulate the truth. They question her, and she tells them plainly what she saw and why she did what she did. And they lie about her, and they falsely accuse her, attributing to the devil and demons what is clearly from God. And even though she's shaken and she's afraid and she wavers here and there in her fear, even at the last minute, she's struggling. She sticks to the good news in Jesus Christ that she experienced in those visions and in the Holy Scriptures. She sticks to what she learned at her church as a young girl. She sticks to it all the way until they tie her to a stake and burn her alive, even while she calls out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. She says, hold the crucifix, the cross before my eyes so I can see it until I die. And her own family begged her to back down. They took it hard. How could her own family not think that she hated them? Jesus uses two examples for his disciples to thin down this crowd He says you have to count the cost. And he says there's a tower being built by a king. There's a tower being built and there's a king going to war. And they both have to count the cost if they have enough money and bricks to build the tower and if the king has enough troops to beat his enemy in war. You see, there's a cost to everything. We know there's a cost to the other choices too. The choice of not following Jesus Because he says in another place, what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their own soul? You see, you can lose your own soul out there when it comes to the things that we own. So Jesus says to carry the cross. And this is both a metaphor and a reality. The cross became a Christian symbol very early in Christian history. The first surviving picture of Jesus is on the Palatine Hill museum in Rome. It was on the Palatine Hill and graffiti inscribed there around 200 AD. And it says it's a it's a description of an ass, a donkey or a horse being crucified in the body of a man, head of a horse, the body of a man being crucified. And there's a man below the horse that's being crucified looking up at the horse. And the graffiti inscription says, Alex Menon worships his God. Alex Memon worships his God. In other words, Alex Memon worships a crucified ass. And this is the first picture we have of Jesus. He is on a cross. He is disfigured, mischaracterized, misunderstood. Both he is insulted and his follower 
and worshiper Alex Memon is insulted. It's hard to imagine this being a glamorous career path for anybody. And that's what Jesus is saying. This being his disciple is not a glamorous career path. It is not a way to advance yourself in the world. What it is, is a way to suffer with people who are suffering, to bear the burdens of your fellow person and of the world, and to do what he did, to open your arms of love wide, even on the hardwood of the cross. It'll cost you everything you possess, all your possessions, all the stuff that we hang on to for our self-worth and dignity, all the stuff that gives us power in the world, all the stuff that must go, our ideologies, our petty grievances, our insistence on our way and our will. Jesus shows us the way, and that way is a man carrying a cross. It's a young woman at her trial saying, if I am in God's grace, may God keep me there. If I am not, may God put me there. It is you when you're faced with getting your way or giving it to God. It's me when I want those things to happen in my life that I've been waiting to happen for a long time. This is what following Jesus is about. This is what he asks and desires his disciples to be and to do. Amen. Thank you.